Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Lisa. She's a listener to this show. That's right. Great conversations and great guests are fueled week after week by listeners. People who love this show. If that's you and you've never donated, please consider a one-time donation. Or become a monthly sustainer of the program and get access to bonus episodes. It's your choice, but we do rely on you to keep this show going. Lisa, you paid the web hosting bill for us this month. Thank you so much. If you want to pitch in, go to thebittersweetlife.net to find donation options or look for links in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Anna Sale. She's the creator and host of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. It's a production of WNYC Studios that's been around since 2014. Before that, she covered politics for public radio, and she's the author of a new book titled Let's Talk About Hard Things. Anna, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So Death, Sex, and Money, three gigantic topics that you regularly talk about. But I was curious, which one of those topics when you first started your show would you say was the hardest for you to talk about? Hmm. Well, I think death, not so much, because I, I still haven't lost someone super close to me. But sex and money, probably equally hard <laughs> <laughs> for me. When I started the show, like I probably because when I started the show, my I was like just had just kind of reconciled with my now husband, Arthur, and we decided to be together. And, and I still had like big questions about like relationships and marriage and making it all work. And money has always been, it's like my, my angsty place. That's where my anxiety goes is to stability and risk aversion. But I would say now seven years later, not so much angst about sex, you know, money. I'm really trying to not feel as panicked and scared. And probably writing this book was a part of that. But money is still the thing that I just have like the most hang ups around. It's interesting because The Bittersweet Life, this show has also been around for seven years. Mm -hmm. And we started out very much exploring questions of, I think, identity, who we want to be in the world, if we're on the right path bravery, certainly taking risks in going to your management and saying, I want to make a show about these three things. Were you trying to discover stuff about yourself? Because I often use radio to discover things. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that I I want to know about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't know how much that was conscious. But yes, that was a big part of like, I want more company and like figuring out this stuff. But what I what I mostly remember my my thinking about going to the bosses and like pitching this show, the conscious worry was like, is this okay? Like, what are people going to think of me? I, I've been like a serious news reporter. And now I'm saying I want to like, do these very personal stuff. Like, is that is that weird? <laughs> like, is that okay? Yeah, that was the thing I was the most self conscious about. But I've I've since decided it's totally okay. And it's also very legitimate and important journalism that people need. So I've moved through that worry. Certainly, yeah. 
Do you ever miss the uh, hardcore politics, that sort of thing, especially coming out of the era of Trump? I can tell you there wasn't a second where I thought I wish I was covering politics during the Trump years. I think because it was just, it just seemed so exhausting and hard to just like be in control of what you wanted to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I still, you know, there's still a part of me that like really cares about and and thinks about stories and um, stories about how our communities are functioning and not functioning um, in our relationships to one another. So a little bit like at a higher level than than what we tend to focus on at Death, Sex and Money which is more sort of intimate and personal. But I don't know, I I have found that I can like sneak in some of those stories as well about like how we're sort of relating to each other at the broader social level. I think that's like a place where we're sort of evolving into is like, how do we relate to one another in very personal relationships? And how do we relate to one another in this joint project of living together. Yeah, which I think is something that you really get into with your identity section in the book, which Mm -hmm. we'll get to. But I want to start with where you started the book, which was with your divorce. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about when you were deciding how to put this book together. Why was that the starting place for you? I think I was trying to like go back and figure out where did this come from? (laughs) (laughs) Why is this what you do? And it really did start with this profound time of crisis for me and also feeling like I kind of lost the script it was I was 30 and I had been married since I was 26 to a guy that I I met when I was in college so we had been learned how to be adults together and I thought that that was the way my life was going to be that we were partners and we were going to do life that way together and then when that relationship ended not just ended but when when I realized it was going to end and couldn't stop it from ending, I felt a lot of shame. And I also realized that I felt it was like a real blow to my sense of my own ability to problem solve my way out of hard things, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to start the book there because I think that we have this like marketplace of advice podcasts and self-help books and life hacks and TED Talks. And there's just this idea that if you're like committed enough to really studying and getting the right information, you can navigate around a lot of hard stuff. And I tend to have the opposite thesis, which is like the hard stuff is coming for you. So what are you going to do about that? That's what I think powers the death, sex, and money, and also the book, which is like, if you don't expect yourself to be able to avoid this hard stuff with your own cleverness, if instead you accept that some of these tensions and hard things are sort of built in, death is always hard. There's no fixing it or getting around it. Money is hard because it's really hard to talk about because you're talking about lots of different things at once. And also, There's no talking your way out of like very real material inequities and imbalances and differences that don't have moral rationalizations like that's hard. So if you if you say like this, this is what's hard about each of these hard things. And then your task becomes how do we describe them together or talk about them together or talk about how we're each encountering them. It's a different conversation. And I do think it becomes less hard because you realize Oh, I don't need to solve for this hard thing. 
I can just be sort of witnessing it and talking about it. Yeah, you touched on the idea of the divorce is coming and you end up feeling like you have to live off script. And and that's really one of the things that we've explored so much in the show is where those scripts come from. Mm-hmm. We all have this idea of how it's supposed to be. And then, of course, we all later come to be asking questions about if that is indeed the case. But would you be able to st- describe where your script came from? Well, I think our scripts come from a lot of places. For me, I was born in 1980 in Nashville, Tennessee, to two parents. My mom worked while we were in school and then was home when we were out of school. And my dad was a doctor. And I guess I say that to, like, I had a pretty traditional upbringing. And I was raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church. So I was like raised with this idea that like, you can believe whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people believe lots of things and that's okay. But there's all these different belief systems out there and, and sort of with this like survey kind of way of learning about life, there's lots of these different ways to do this. So it's not like I, I was raised with a really like rigid script about you ought to do this and you ought to be this. But I mean, one of my scripts also was from like, movies about love mm-hmm. <laughs> which which is like oh and you fall in love and you find your person you go through life together you know so that was another script I had and also like can a relationship end even one that's like a marriage where you've committed to being with each other can that end without someone being the villain mm-hmm. so you know I picked it up all over the place all these different scripts but but they were both like you know, not true and confining, but also they gave me a sense of like order about this is how things unfold. And so when I was 30 and divorced and figuring out, oh my God, like for the first time in my life, God, it's so weird. I never realized I'd never lived by myself before. I went straight from living with my family of origin to college and living with roommates to living with this guy who became my husband. Like, oh, that's, that's so weird. Like being alone, I haven't done this before. You know, there was just like really basic stuff that I had to learn how to do that I'm really glad I learned how to do, but it, it wasn't a life turn that I, that I intentionally made. It felt like it was happening to me. And then you take on this job where, so you're having hard conversations in that regard when you, your marriage is ending. And then years later, you take on this show where you have to have really hard conversations with people on a regular basis, just because you've picked three hard topics to talk about. Um, so what did you learn about how to approach a really hard conversation? And maybe there would be two answers, approaching a really hard conversation with someone you love and versus approaching a really hard conversation with a stranger, essentially. Yeah, I think I got skillful first at doing it with strangers because that's what the making the show taught me to do. And and an early thing that I realized when you have a show called Death, Sex and Money and you're like sending out emails and you're saying, "Hi, please come talk to me for this show called Death, Sex and Money." <laughs> <laughs> like like you have to immediately figure out what is the next sentence that will make them not want to just like be like run away and be like, "Why would I talk to this person about that?" That sentence is usually some variation on like our show is, we say, about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. And, and we focus on moments of transition in life and the stuff that we all go through in the hopes of like making our listeners feel less alone. And 
when you can kind of say, this is why I want to have this conversation with you. This is why I want to move out of like the normal kind of polite conversation and, and ask you some more probing things. It's in the service of sharing, you know, I want to know what you learned from going through that. And when you explain it that way to someone, it's pretty remarkable what can happen when they are bought into that. And then you're sort of like collaborating together on, on this conversation and really exchanging some deep stuff. And I think what I learned from that, like doing that in a radio studio and in the context of a podcast interview, how that applies to my regular life, I've learned like one of the most important things about when you want to have a conversation about something that's like a little bit just might hit a nerve, you know, like just might either make someone you love uncomfortable or just be like a little stressful at the end of the day. Like how important it is to start that conversation with like a signal flare by saying something like, can I talk to you about, is it okay? I got to talk to you about something important right now. Is, is, is now a good time or, and just allowing that maybe it's not a good time, you know, maybe, you know, my husband is just home from a really long day and he just doesn't want to, he can't do that in this moment. He doesn't have the energy rather than like plowing right in and then being frustrated that he can't listen to me in the way that I want to be listened to. We can then be like, okay, we'll, we'll get to this on Saturday morning or something, you know, and I, and I think that that's something that making the show has taught me. And then like, when you have little kids, you have to pick your spots. You have to be like, I need to talk to you about this one thing. We'll do it later after the playground, (laughs) you know, like you to fit them in, you know, but just how important it is to like, get permission to go in with someone's and just making sure that they're in the space to be able to do it with you. Yeah. And one of the things that you highlight too, that I thought was interesting was, and maybe you can explain it better certainly than I could. What is the difference between being in these hard conversations? What's the difference between what are you hearing versus how you're hearing it? Yeah. I mean, I think of these conversations, like when you're in a conversation, let's say any hard conversation, like has emotional stakes, right? You want to be listening for the information that the person is telling you or focusing on the information that you want the person to know. And then you also have to think about how, how that's being communicated. There's this great line that I learned from Maria Bamford, who said it's like a a line that you learn in the recovery community. Say what you mean, but don't say it mean, (laughs) which I just love. It's so simple. It's a challenge because it's like, how can I be as direct as I need to be while also giving care to make sure I'm saying it in a way that the person can hear. And, you know, that can be some basic stuff you learn in couples counseling, like I statements versus you statements, <laughs> or or also saying things like, you know, I find in my in my personal life, when it's a conversation that's sort of gotten heated, to t- slow down and say, okay, I here's what I hear you saying. I hear you saying that this this is irritating to you that I did it in this way. Is that right? Just remembering that like often what is so agitating is when you're feeling someone talking at you and that they're not listening to you back. So when you really pay attention to like saying, I'm hearing you, I'm, I'm really trying to hear you and I need you to hear this, like that that kind of exchange can just make it a little, it's less of a battle and more of a conversation. 
Yeah, you mentioned in the book about those emotional swells that you can feel during a hard conversation and that sometimes you just, you would think that emotional swells in a hard conversation are good, but oftentimes they can be derailing oh, and yeah. getting them under control will help with the healing or the hearing of what the person is saying. Yeah, I can, I don't know about you, but like I can feel it in my body. I basically become a teenager. I become <laughs> like an, an indignant, yeah. that's my worst self is when I become just like when it's when a conversation becomes something I'm trying to win and and I just feel different that's when I know okay I can't do this conversation right now I need to take a minute to just like shift into a different mode Katie here one thing I've done a lot during the last year of lockdown and pandemic is play games and one of the favorites is called Love Letter. Derek and I played it a lot. In Love Letter, a princess is looking for a partner and confidant to help her with her royal duties when she assumes the throne. Your job is to prove your worth and gain her trust by enlisting friends and family of the princess to carry a letter of intent to her. Can you earn the princess's trust and become her confidant? You'll find out when you play. Love Letter is simple. You draw a card and play a card on your turn, using the character's abilities on the card to stay in the round and get your letter closer to the princess. This game's great for two to six players, and it's quick. It plays in about 20 minutes, and it fits in your pocket so you can take it with you anywhere. Love Letter is appropriate for ages 10 and up, and it's available for $11.99 through zmangames.com. You can also find it at Target or your local game store. Back to the show. All right, well, let's get into the broader categories. So the book is broken into death, sex, and money categories, of course, and family and identity as well. Why did you decide to include family and identity along with your usual three? Well, I really felt like, you know, in the show, those are two big categories that kind of get woven in, like they're just part of what we often talk about, even though they're not in the name of the show. And I wanted to pull them out for a focused look. Like, I, I think that, like, if it's just death, sex, and money, and if you broadly define sex as, you know, sex and intimacy and also any romantic relationship, it leaves out, like, what about love relationships that aren't romantic? And family can be some of the most challenging places that those occur. And I think that there's something... Often family is something you're talking about and it's a setting in which you're having these conversations. And I, I wanted to look at in particular family in when you're like an adult, your relationship to your family of origin when you're an adult. One kind of big idea that I, I wanted to just like assert and remind people of is like a feeling of tension and apartness from your family of origin is normal and natural that there is this tension in our family relationships of we both share this common history we you know share these patterns of relating to one another we have known these people longer than we've known anyone else and at the same time the experience of growing up is an experience of separation so there are places where you are different and apart and figuring out that space between like, I feel of these people and also apart from these people. If you just like accept that that is what family is, that's 
a problem you don't have to solve for. You don't have to solve for like, oh, there's ways in which I feel really deeply misunderstood by this family member. She should know me by now. Why doesn't she? And instead, it's like, oh, our lives have really like they look really different now than they than, you know, we how we grew up. But our lives now look really different. That's why we're having this impasse on this one thing. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a much more sort of like forgiving way to think about what how hard conversations and families should go. Well, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that sometimes a hard conversation within a family of origin as you put it, and this is a quote, can create a space for outdated dynamics to reset. Yeah. Which I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. Because, yeah, of course, kids always look like kids to the parents, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah. And parents look like parents to kids. And instead, like, as you all age, there needs to be some shifts in that. You know, as your parents age, for example, like, how are you going to make space for them for their own physical vulnerability if you're you know, lucky enough to have them get older. Those things have to shift. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to family a little bit. I I thought it would be fun. Obviously, this book is wide ranging and you cover multiple dynamics of every single aspect of every topic. So (laughs) we're only going to be able to briefly touch, but I thought it'd be fun to touch on one thing in each category. Okay. And just explore that aspect of the theme and then people can read more by actually getting your book. So you start with death. So let's start with death. Okay. What have you learned about what not to say to someone who's grappling with the death of someone they love? And you use Megan, uh, Megan's story as a great example. So if you want to tell her story, you can, or you can just take the question on its face. Yeah. I mean, Megan is, I'm really glad I got to meet her through researching this book. Uh, Megan Devine is a grief therapist and a writer. She's an incredible book called It's Okay, You're Not Okay which is really the message she had about talking about death, which is don't try to comfort someone in grief by trying to fix it. Also, don't put more work on their shoulders by saying things like, please let me know if I can do anything, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I thought was like a really good reminder. Like, of course, when someone tells me that, I, I know they're saying it's other, they're, they're trying to say, I love you and I care about you. But they're actually saying, you know, the way that it can be experienced is like, if you need something, you need to figure out how to ask me and tell me what to do and precisely and, you know, instead of like, just offering the help, you know, mm-hmm. um, more concretely. Megan came into this work. Um, she was a therapist before, but but she was a young woman when her, her long-term partner, her romantic partner, they were hiking in the woods in Maine, and he drowned suddenly. So one day he was there, and the next day he was gone. And it was shattering. Her reality was upside down, and she, it was profound grief. And she just hungered for someone to say, I'm really sorry, and it's going to be a long time until you feel this is going to take a long time, and it's okay. Just to just to be alongside her in the grief and, and not make her feel like there was sort of this um, kind of journey of grief that she was on that was going to end in a resolution, kind of. You know, when, when someone says something like, you'll get through this, they some some people even said to her, like, you'll find someone else, you're young, which is like, <laughs> not the thing to say, <laughs> you know, when you're just profoundly missing this person who you wish hadn't died. 
But just more generally, it was really useful for me to hear her say, like, just don't try to fix it. Like, you're not going to fix it with words when you're trying to comfort someone who is in deep grief. Words can't do that. And if you allow that that's not what your role is, it's easier. It's easier to just say, I'm thinking about you. I'm going to send you this book because it made me think of him and I love you. And then, you know, a couple months later, maybe you call and you say, I was thinking about you. I thought about this memory of him together. How are you doing? You know, that kind of talking, that kind of reaching out and expressing care. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I can remember when a friend of mine had a wife die very suddenly when we were younger, just feeling that immense sense that he was at the beginning of a gigantic journey. Mm. And as his friend, knowing how inept I was to even begin to help him with that. And I guess it is that feeling of when people say those platitudes and stuff is, is trying to figure out well, what what can I do when really you know that that this is going to be really hard for them. Yeah. And you just sort of say, I'm going to be with you through it. Because when you do that, it's like, it's incredible to commit to like being a friend to someone who is going through absorbing that kind of loss and allowing them to be messy and unresolved in front of you. That's a real, I have a friend who lost her husband and I just feel the things we know each about each other, you know, and the ways that we can love each other because we've seen each other through some really like ugly feelings. It's a really strong relationship that I love. And I love that she shared her grief with me and all the feelings and anger. And I love that I was able to like be a person that she could do that with. Mm hmm. So this is going to feel jumpy because now we're going to jump to sex. Out of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But why not? <laughs> That's my fault, not yours. That's the book's no, fault. No, no. <laughs> I could have just chosen to do a whole show on death, but we kind of have a running joke on this show that I tend to talk about death too much when that's not the focus <laughs> of the entire show. So it's definitely a topic that I, I think about a lot. But let's go to sex. So you write about marriage and couples. One of the things that you say is, we are expecting each other to fulfill more than ever at a time when we feel more free to define what love and sex can and should be like in our lives. So what are you exploring there? Oh, just like, oh, gosh. There's so many, and thankfully so, there is so there's so much openness about kind of um, what you can choose to invite in into your sex life and your romantic life and, and the kinds of partnerships you want to have and how many partners you want to have and who you want to be with. Um, so there's that huge playing field. <laughs> and then on top of that, there's that, you know, there's this idea that we expect a lot out of our romantic partners. We expect, uh, you know, we expect them to be our soulmates. We expect them to be our professional cheerleaders and, and companions. Um, we expect them to be, if you have kids, like your partner in parenting. And, and that's, that's how I would describe my marriage right now. Like, it's really great that we have these like expectations for each other, but it's a lot, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's a lot for one relationship to contain. And so I think that what that means when, when there are so many available options and ways of being, it's not automatic what your relationship is going to be like. 
you know, there's not slots that you're fitting into. So then that means you have to talk about it. You've got to talk about like, what kind of, you know, how much sex do we want to have in our life in a long term relationship? Like what's what feels right for you? Like, what do you feel like you need? We also have to talk about whether monogamy is something that's important to both of you. Um, You have to talk about, um, you know, the kinds of separation and division of labor. If you have a household together, like what feels fair and right? And sometimes what feels fair and right isn't actually what's doable. So what do you do if if it becomes unequal and it's not fitting this ideal that you've said you're both committed to? That's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff that that, that you have to talk about in your relationship because you're not again it's not just these inherited roles that you just sort of slot into another thing you write in the sex category is that to talk honestly about sex it's important to start with uncertainty why do you believe that's true well i was really comforted by the idea when i was writing this like i was like why is sex like certainly sex is hard to talk about because you know it's we have all these like subconscious rules about what's even okay to say out loud about what we want and what feels good and what we're willing to do but the uncertainty is like sex is it's you're always figuring that out with somebody else Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's who what they want and what they want from you and with you like you don't know so that's what the conversation is figuring out even can I buy you a drink you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you're standing at a bar and a stranger walks up to you you know, that stranger doesn't know if you're going to say yes. You don't know if you want to say yes or say like, yes, you can buy me a drink, but I don't want to go home with you. Like, that's the tension is like, do I want what this person, what this other person wants? And, you know, that means making, how do you communicate about rejection and, and when someone doesn't want to be with you? How do you, instead of just like ghosting, how do you say it out loud? Or what if what you wanted with the person has changed you know what if the way your relationship has been going is you you thought you'd figured it out and then something changed like that's that's uncertainty that's like this is something that's unnamed that's what you're trying to kind of you know there's just this like sort of sort of space between what you're thinking and feeling what the person you're in relationship is thinking and feeling and that's what you're trying to talk around and to yeah I'm curious, actually, maybe it would be more affected by the show than by your first marriage versus your second. But have your views about it changed from one marriage to the next? My views about sex or my views about talking about sex? Yeah. Hmm. My views about it. I think I'm better now. (laughs) I think I've gotten good with practice. You know, Um, I think the thing about my first marriage I don't know. Like, I've always been, like, a feelings talker, but I still, I just, I don't know that I knew, really appreciated, like, how much you had to make room for change within a long-term relationship, you know? Mm -hmm. When you're beside someone, even when you've decided to be beside someone, there's a lot that's constantly shifting. Maybe one of you is like really stressed out at work. Maybe one of you is depressed. Maybe one of you has lost a lot of weight. Maybe one of you is sick. Maybe, you know, like the ways you relate to each other intimately and what you feel comfortable sharing together and what you what you don't feel comfortable sharing. Like all of that's like stuff that can 
change. And that that's like, that's just like normal. Instead of being a threat, um, I think, I think my, my experience in my first marriage was like, how do I, how do I just like protect what we have and have decided to do? Like, how do I protect it instead of being like curious about what's shifting? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Let's do another big jump to money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This, this is book is going to be a hard book tour for you. I feel uh, <laughs> there's a lot of deep stuff in here. And we're going to leave this conversation here for now. There is much more to come. Anna and I talked for another half an hour. So we're breaking this episode in two. Part two will be released this Thursday when we usually release our second episode of the week. We will be tackling three more big topics, money, family, and identity. The book is Let's Talk About Hard Things by Anna Sale. And you can win a free copy by signing up for our newsletter. Just send a good email address to bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. That's bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com, or send it to us through social media. Just look for the Bittersweet Life Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also win a copy by donating to the show. Help us pay web hosting fees, equipment upkeep, batteries for our recorder, advertising, all the things it takes to keep an independent show in existence. You can find links to donate in our show notes. And finally, subscribe to the show so you don't miss part two. It's very candid and very worth hearing. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. (laughs) 